Welcome to Jerusalem Talks, a podcast series produced by the Jerusalem Center for Public Affairs. I'm Adam Shai, online editor. In this series, our fellows and experts will take up the challenges facing Israel and the Middle East. Join us as we explore and explain the important issues from this complex region. Today we shall focus on a quite short period of time of the uh, initial phase of uh, relations between uh, Jews and Muslim um, in the period of the life of uh, the Prophet, of Muhammad, and uh, his uh, early contacts uh, with Jews, mainly in the city of uh, Al-Medina. And we shall see how these relations are reflected in the Quran. And in the last chapter, I'll, uh, I hope to present a, a quite a modern interpretation uh, of one specific verse, so to show that there are really many options of uh, exegesis, exegesis. Okay. Now, of course, uh, it's not a secret that it is, this is quite a gloomy chapter in the history of our people, of the Jewish people, not knowing, knowing enough, uh, also because we don't have uh, Jewish uh, sources that tell us about the events back then. Um, and, uh, uh, and of course, the, the whole issue, though it happened uh, 1,400 years ago is still very important uh, in our days because it has a deep influence on the way Jews in general are perceived by Muslims, uh, especially because the story of or the plot of this, these relations uh, is uh, presented uh, in the Quran, in the Hadith, which is the Muslim traditions, and therefore uh, it is very vivid uh, to these days. And uh, <coughs> uh, just to give you an idea how relevant it's, it still is, uh, for example, in the recent demonstrations in, Gaza, in the Gaza Strip, uh, the, some of the demonstra demonstrators chanted, Chaybar, uh, Chaybar, O Jews, the army of Muhammad is, is, is coming back, is going to return, is going to attack you, something like that. In Arabic, it's, it skips the rhythm. Um, and the question is, what is this Khaybar? Okay, and we shall discuss it. Where is it and what happened there that it is so important that uh, current Muslims mention it so often, for example? <clears throat> but you find a lot of references in, uh, to, to, uh, to, to, to Jews, to the state of Israel, uh, establishing it themselves upon the, uh, the traditional Islamic sources. Um, so uh, I, I suggest that we begin with the uh, historic reality. Yes, uh, we, what, what happened? What happened? And then we shall see its reflection in the Quran. That is because uh, if we begin the other way around, if we begin with the Quran, it's going to be totally unclear because the Quran doesn't present the context. 
Yes, the context is established according to the Muslim traditions. So, um, the, 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 uh, the first issue is who, who were those Jews? Uh, and I prepared a, a timeline, yes, that uh, can help us uh, find ourselves in the many details that I will present. I'll try not to present all the details, but some of them are necessary for understanding uh, the general picture. So first, let, let us present the Jews. The names of the, the uh, biggest Jewish tribes of Medina are mentioned, if you see in the fourth uh, column, expulsion of Kainuka, this is one uh, tribe. The other name is Nadir, uh, 625, expulsion of Nadir, and in 627, the massacre of Kuwaiza. These are the main three um, uh, tribes in Al-Madina. Now, um, um, as I said, we don't have independent Jewish sources that can tell us uh, more about the Jews. We have scant information. <coughs> and, the, the, and as you see from the names, they are, these are Arab names, and uh, I, I'm not going to present the names of members of these tribes, but they are also Arab names. So it's clear that these Jews uh, went through a process of Arabization, and the general assumption in the research is that there were kind, some kind of Arabs uh, holding to the religion of Moses, so to speak. Yes, as we speak about uh, German Jews in recent history. Now, um, uh, where, where, they, where, where was their origin? It's, it is unclear. Uh, some of them probably came to Al-Medina from Yemen. Yes, and Yemen is outside of our discussion today, but there is a Jewish community there. Uh, so, some of them maybe were uh, converts to Judaism, Arab converts to Judaism uh, because of relationship of Arab tribes with the land of Israel. And uh, pro probably some of them migrated from Israel, uh, maybe after the uh, destruction of the first temple or the second temple. This is really still uh, to be researched uh, more fully. And now it's always, even when we study Quran, it's always good to uh, incorporate uh, a portion from the Mishnah. It's interesting to note that in the Mishnah, in the Tractat of uh, Shabbat, there is a saying that uh, Jewish women, um, uh, Jewish Arab women, uh, uh, might go out on Saturday with a veil. Yes, it's in, in Hebrew it's only three words, Arviot, Yotzot, Reulot. Ra'ala is the word for veil in Hebrew. And uh, this is very interesting because it speaks about uh, actual history. Uh, I'll remind you that we deal with around the year uh, 200, yes? Uh, 200, uh, 400 years and more uh, before the events that we shall unfold here. And, uh, <clears throat> and this is interesting that the Mishnah knows about Jewish women and about their habits and why they call them Arab women, Arviot, because uh, they used the, 
and of course the Mishnah is uh, directed to Jews and uh, as a guideline for Jews. So um, the, uh, it's clear that there was a community there that was called uh, Arab and they kept the Jewish uh, traditions. And the Mishnah adds, because it's, it's, it's aware of the quite rare nature of this halacha, uh, of this phrasing uh, uh, of the law, because usually, of course, the Mishnah relates to every Jew, everywhere. It doesn't make a distinction upon a geographical consideration, so they, uh, they add that it's relevant for every person, but uh, the sages, the Chachamim, spoke in the present, yes, spoke about the present. So this is an evidence, some evidence about the year uh, uh, 200, and uh, it gives us a clue to the conclusion that those were, so to speak, regular Jews, Talmudic Jews, yes, that kept, uh, kept the halacha, lived among the Arabs, and, uh, and uh, maybe this is one of the reasons that they so fearfully uh, refused uh, to join Muhammad's community and to embrace his preachings, yes? Because uh, they couldn't uh, come to terms with the notion that there is a new non-Jewish uh, prophet, while the Jewish tradition clearly says that even for the Jews there are no more prophets after Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi in the, in the beginning of the period of the Second Temple. Now, one of, one of the, another surprising thing uh, about the Jews there that there was almost no cooperation among them. And maybe this is a sign of the, disunity, the continuous disunity that characterizes our people, yes? Uh, um, but uh, in in all the in all the the events that uh, I'll present, we don't see uh, really genuine cooperation among themselves. So have every tribe usually on it, on its own. Okay. So uh, now the hijra you can see on the second uh, line. The hijra is the migration of Muhammad and his disciples from uh, Mecca, where he, grew, where he was born and grew up, and, and his preachings uh, were totally unacceptable to his own tribe, the tribe of Quraysh, yes? Not to, not to mess it with the Jewish tribe of Quraysh. It's somewhat uh, similarity in the sound. Okay, so uh, why, why Muhammad is moving to Al-Medina? Because he is persecuted by the Meccans. And in Medina, prior to the uh, actual act of migration, he finds, uh, he, 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 he succeeded in um, persuading some of the uh, small number of uh, Medinan Arabs to join his new religion. Now, what is very interesting is that uh, uh, there is a story about 12, 12 representatives of Al-Medina meeting him prior to the migration, and the Muslim sources tell us that seven of them were, so to speak, graduates of the Jewish 
חיידר, אור מדרש, אור מדרס, אין אל מדינה. So now we have from the Muslim sources another, uh, another detail that there was a Jewish school and more than that, that some of the uh, pagan Arabs before Islam even sent their uh, children to learn there. You know, it's always good to have some Yiddishkeit. Maybe they thought they, they, this was their line of thinking, yes? But this, of course, had an influence, yes? It had an influence on their upbringing and, the, and their um, more positive uh, attitude toward monotheistic ideas. We don't know exactly what was learned there, yes? What was the curriculum? But it's logical that it was something like Cheder uh, that we know, uh, or Kutab in, uh, in Jewish tradition, for example, in Yemen. And their reading, writing, was it in Hebrew, was it in uh, Judeo-Arabic, namely Arab language in Jewish letters? It's, uh, it's really unclear, but it is clear that people learned there. How do we know that? Uh, we know it, as I said, from the Islamic sources, but we have an interesting anecdote about, uh, about one of these graduates that was later involved in a certain conflict in, within the Muslim community, and then um, he was accused by his, uh, by his rivals. They told him, but actually you are a Jew. You were a Jew. Yes, he, you were like a Jew with, uh, with uh, two uh, side curls, yes, pace, yes? So this is very interesting, yes? So we have another detail that this the way they, uh, uh, they manage their hair, so to speak. And uh, this is also according to what we know about the Jews in Arabia, if you remember the Yemenite community that came to Israel. For example, so uh, they meet uh, the, uh, the prophet, those representative, and he's accepted, and then he comes to Al Medina. Now, what is the situation inside Medina? It's a, it's an important uh, center for trade, for commerce, for in many aspects. There are two major Arab uh, tribes and the three Jewish tribes, and what we know is that the Jews enjoyed upon Muhammad's arrival, enjoyed a very high status in Medina. For example, one, uh, uh, one tribe is dealing with a goldsmith, uh, as goldsmith. Others have uh, very important uh, commercial roles in, in Arabia at large and outside of Arabia. There is agriculture, yes, uh, there are some oasis near the, in the area of El Medina. So especially dates. And uh, we also know that the Jews had uh, some fortresses and also fortified houses. So they are really very important. So uh, what we know that the Jews are not part, of course, of the, the major tribes of the Jews are not part of the uh, new community, new Muslim community that is being established or making its initial steps in El Medina. But we do know uh, that uh, Muhammad uh, signs with them uh, agreements of uh, non-belligerency, so to speak. Uh, yes, they, they are not protege of Muhammad, 
nor he a protege of the tribes, but uh, something like equals, they sign agreements of uh, uh, especially not attacking each other. Only very few Jews, uh, maybe some uh, sub-branch of a small tribe or Jews as individuals do join the new community and convert uh, to Islam. Now, <coughs> Uh, in addition to that, there, na there is now an ongoing process of Muhammad trying to persuade the Jews to accept his uh, preachings, yes, and to convince them that they should join his, uh, tr his troops, his loyalists. Um, and as I mentioned, the Jews uh, usually refuse. Yes, uh, you mentioned the distinction between various uh, groups of Jews, for example, there are small minority, it is reflected in the Quran, that speak well of those Jews who did uh, join the new community. And uh, we shall meet them maybe afterwards, they had uh, an important role in, uh, the, so to speak, in the education of the new community. Now, uh, and uh, as I said, the Jews refuse. Uh, to, to, to join him, and uh, a parallel uh, process is the, that Muhammad succeeds in uh, uh, stressing his links to the major Arab tribes. Those Arab tribes also had agreements with the Jews. So, uh, uh, as long as Muhammad is successful in strengthening his ties with the Arab tribes, he succeeded, succeeds in weakening their relations and defense agreements with the Jews. Yes, the, the Arab tribes um, get to understand or get to, uh, to perceive the situation that they are now more and more parts of the new community uh, whose the denominator, uh, common denominator, is Islam, the new religion, and not the tribal ties, yes, and tribal commitments. This process is called in Arabic the change of heart, yes, and of course he makes use of it in order to attack the Jews. Now, uh, why does he decide that he has to go against the Jews? Uh, first of all, he is very much annoyed by their refusal uh, to join him. And the second, and non, not less important, is the fact that they are very rich and powerful. And they can prevent or hinder the process of the Arabs joining him. And on the other hand, if they are defeated, then can, he can inherit and get hold of a, a, a lot of important uh, material, land, etc. So we shall see uh, parts of the polemics, the very interesting polemics and claims of Muhammad against the Jews later when we discuss uh, the verses. Uh, now we shall deal, let's say, with the actual events on the ground. And as you can see, um, uh, first, after the Battle of Badr, the Battle of Badr in 624 in the third line, it was a fight of Muhammad against the people of Quraysh, his own tribe from Mecca. 
it was a, a win of the Muslims, but uh, it didn't change uh, much on the ground. And as you see, uh, you will see also later, after each battle, almost, with the Quraysh, there was some step against the, Jew the Jews. So you can see the expulsion of Kainuka. Yes, it's a Jewish, one of the Jewish tribes, as I mentioned, probably the weakest one. It was quite easy. And uh, 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 once the, uh, 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 he succeeded in uh, severing the ties of uh, a certain Jewish tribe with its Arab uh, neighbors, with, with his Arab allies, uh, previous allies, then it was easy uh, to come against them. As you see, they were expelled, yes? And uh, m uh, most of their property was left for the uh, Muslims. <coughs> In uh, a year, about a year later, there was an expulsion of another uh, Jewish tribe, the tribe of Nadir, a, ver a very strong tribe, an important one, and also uh, um, uh, the idea was to expel them. It is uh, being said in the Muslim tradition that they were given the right to load upon the camels as much as they can. The, the tradition sometimes mentioned even 600 camels, but still a lot was left for the Muslim uh, community. Two years later, after the Battle of the Trench, this is a battle that uh, uh, took part uh, in, uh, in uh, the vicinity of Al-Madina, uh, and uh, the, the Muslim army was successful to defend against the, the people of Quraysh. Then uh, we have uh, the major event of the massacre of the men, yes, of the men, or most of the men, it's still unclear, but at least uh, 400 uh, members of this tribe, from the men of this tribe, out of uh, 600 or 700, were executed. And uh, this is really a, a major event in, in, uh, in Jewish and uh, Muslim history. Now, uh, the, the how to explain or why did he kill them, it is, it's not that clear, but uh, uh, probably he felt that he should uh, exemplify his strengths, his authority, and it also has to do with their relations with the Arab tribes. Probably in the first uh, two cases of Kainuka and Nadir, still the, the Arab tribes had some influence uh, with Muhammad, and uh, they could, uh, let's say, uh, tell him, please let our former allies or previous allies uh, save their lives, yes? But with Kuwaiza, they had less support uh, among the Arab tribes, and therefore it was easier uh, to act against them so brutally. Now, the Muslim tradition itself is not at ease with this uh, event. But as it, as it mentions it uh, very frequently, very often, it is, uh, let's say, it's clear that it did happen. Uh, now, it tries to portray the act as the decision to kill the man was not uh, directly Muhammad's decision, 
but a decision of one Muslim that was injured in the Battle of the Trench, and Muhammad transfers to him the authority, and the Jews, as, it, as the tradition goes, accepted that he will be, let's say, the judge. He is going to decide what will be the fate of the Jews. And he decided that the, the men are going to be killed and the women and children are going to be taken captive. But that might be, let's say, a, a way of the Muslim tradition to evade the fact that it was a clear uh, directive from Muhammad uh, to deal in that way with the tribe. <coughs> and as you know, maybe some of you know that uh, uh, our one of our great poets, uh, Shaul Chernichovsky, now on the 50, 50 shekel uh, note, uh, wrote a, a poem about the last of the people of Khorayza. Yes, it's interesting. In Hebrew, I don't know if there is an English translation. <coughs> now, Chaybar that we already mentioned is the, uh, will be the last stop in this uh, in this uh, regard. Khaybar uh, is about uh, 150 kilometers uh, north of Al-Madina, and it was uh, an important Jewish settlement, settlement there. Also agriculture, agri uh, de uh, dealing with agriculture activity, and uh, uh, also some of the people of Kainukai Nadir settled there after the expulsion from Al-Madina. So, in this way, uh, in this way, the, uh, also Muhammad didn't expel them immediately, but they were forced to to leave at least half of their belongings, half of their uh, farms, uh, to the Muslim community. They were, as 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 we know, deported later, already after Muhammad's uh, death. And uh, this is also considered a very important uh, achievement of the nascent uh, Muslim community, now not that small. And after that, it's it was easy for Muhammad. As you see, two years later, he, uh, he managed to have the Meccan surrender in front of him. He entered Mecca as a, as a winner, as a victor, and he died uh, 632 is the date of his uh, death. Now it's interesting to know that Muh what you see here that Muhammad was not only a prophet but a very shrewd and also a cruel politician. Yes, he made, uh, if we look at it in perspective, we see that he made uh, the right decision from his point of view. And in a few years, he managed to get rid of the Jews enjoy their properties and uh, to consolidate his authority almost on all of Arabia. Yes? So when Muhammad is passing away, we have uh, a new religion, we have, so to speak, a state in Arabia, some, some sort of state, and uh, we have uh, um, uh, we have uh, uh, maybe not complete, but we have the book of the Quran which we are going to discuss uh, in a few minutes. And, but uh, another interesting uh, idea, it's, I want to mention, uh, you probably heard about the agreement of Hudaybiyah. 
The agreement of Hudaybiyah was between Muhammad and the Meccans. Muhammad was ready to make some uh, very important concessions. For example, he didn't insist that he would be considered as a messenger of God in the uh, preamble to this uh, treaty. But we now assess that one important achievement in that agreement was that it broke the, um, the relationship between the Meccans and the Jews of Haibar, yes? So it was easy for him to, after that agreement, to go against the Jews of Haibar that now lacked the help, the potential help of the Meccans. Uh, before we go to the Quran, I would like to present you this book uh, that much of what I said uh, based on this book. This is a very interesting research in Hebrew, Muhammad and the Jews by Professor uh, Michael Lecker from the Hebrew University. It's worth reading. And uh, I know that there is a, an English edition in preparation. So uh, this is, to, so to speak, the last word in the, in the field. But uh, uh, just to give you an idea, there is a huge or a vast richness of sources, of Arab sources, that you have to read very carefully and to delineate between truth and false. It's, it's, a, it's a very difficult task to cope with uh, this, ocean, the, this ocean of uh, uh, Muslim sources in Arabic. And to to know or to try to understand what is the what what are the real facts and what is let's say more like uh, fiction or or legends. Okay, so now let's move to the Quran. We shall not. I cannot present, of course, uh, every uh, every verse relevant to the Jews because the Jews are mentioned very often. Uh, so I'll begin, uh, uh, before going to the anti-Jewish verses that constitute the majority of verses relating to the Jews, uh, let me tell you that the Quran treats the Jews uh, in three terms, yes, in three basic terms. The first one was already mentioned, the children of Israel, the ancient Israelites, yes, uh, for example, the, those who wandered in the desert or those who were in the first temple, etc. The second term is the Al Yahud, Yahud, the Jews, and usually relevant for the Jews that were members of these tribes uh, uh, that confronted uh, Muhammad. And a, a third term is more general, it's called the people of the book, and uh, we took it uh, as a pride for us that we are the people of the book, but this is the way the Quran uh, treats us. But this is common uh, to Jews and Christians. Why are they the, the people of the book? Because they were granted from heaven a, a book. The Quran acknowledges that both Jews and Christians got uh, received a holy book, uh, one by Moses, the second one by Jesus. Uh, and, the, and, and the basic Muslim uh, idea is that Muhammad is the continuation, but also the final step of uh, divine revelation to mankind. And therefore, being the last one, it is also the most perfect one. Yes, this is a major pillar 
of uh, Muslim beliefs. So uh, let's begin with this. This is, uh, you can look at it and read it. Uh, this is taken from Arbery's uh, translation of the Quran. Um, you are more uh, knowledgeable in English than me, so maybe you can tell me if it really um, conveys the, uh, the, the style that, is, that, is, that befits a scripture, a holy scripture. But for me, it's somewhat archaic English, but that's the way it is written, and there are, of course, many translations. So you can see, first of all, the Jews are say it means uh, an order from God to Muhammad. Yes, uh, the Quran is basically God's word according to the Muslim tradition, and therefore it say say Muhammad is ordered to say the following. And then, as you can see in the beginning, there is an accusation that the Jews uh, used to slay their prophets. Yes, they were sinners and slayed their prophets. And in the continuation, you have, of course, the story of the Kalf. So there is, a, so to speak, a distinction. The Jews themselves are sinners. Moses is a, is a prophet, is 100% beseder. Yes, <laughs> no, no problem with Moses himself. On the contrary, he is the most mentioned figure in the Quran, much more mentioned in his name than uh, Muhammad. Muhammad is mentioned all, only eight times in the Quran. So, yes, yes, the Quran is a, is a very enigmatic book, very problematic uh, to, to read and to analyze, and uh, lacking context, yes? So, say, so you see here uh, two, two major accusations of the ancient Israelites, yes? They disobeyed, they, dis they disobeyed. Uh, Moses, and this is uh, one of the reasons that uh, this type of stories is, is included, and it, it's not the only one. Uh, we have more uh, about other, other biblical personalities that are considered prophets by Islam, and the usual pattern is to, to portray them as uh, righteous people, obeying God, and to portray their community as sinners. And this is quite similar to the situation of Muhammad itself, as I uh, mentioned in his initial activity in Mecca, that he was confronted with the hostility of the Meccans that refused to accept his uh, new ideas. So uh, one of the ways to encourage him was, according to Muslim tradition, by God telling him, you are not alone in this situation. It happened to Moses, it, it happened to, to Noah, yes? Noah in Arabic, Noel in French, yes? Okay, you know who is the guy. Uh, it happened to many others, yes? So uh, this is a form of encouragement, and uh, the idea is that finally those sinners are going to be um, punished for their behavior, for, for their way of thinking, for the way they treated their prophet. Now we have this, this is a story that uh, also the friend from Al-Azhar mentioned, yes? 
that uh, it's here uh, should, we should add in the beginning, Moses said, yes? So God is telling Muhammad what Moses said. And he said, Moses, my people, enter the only land which God has prescribed for you. But they were sinners and they didn't believe in their own ability to accomplish that. And we know that this is true. We know it from our Bible. That's the Jewish tradition. They said, Moses, we will never enter it so long as they are in it. We, we know. And then I didn't bring all the text, but the, the, the Quran is also aware of, it doesn't mention them in name, but he is aware of the two righteous people, Joshua and Kalev, yes, among the messengers to the, they were despised, the messengers to the Holy Land, and the, they were the one that believed in the ability to do it, yes. But the, the rest of the, com the Israelite community said, we will be sitting here. And then you see here the punishment of 40 years in the desert. And this relates to the whole idea, uh, maybe I, I mentioned it now, that you see some of the, let's say, more liberal or pro-Israeli Muslims do use this verse in a positive way. They say, here the Quran said that this land is prescribed for you. But the majority, of course, of Muslim uh, tradition and jurisprudence is, doesn't accept it like that. And the idea is that Moses did say that, but the, uh, the Jews or the Israelites, they lost their right to own this uh, land, yes, during the ages because of their sins and because of the actual uh, Muslim <laughs> occupation of the city of Jerusalem in 636 so to speak, yes. Uh, we shall I hope we shall mention it later, the conquest of Jerusalem in a certain uh, aspect. Okay, so, and now we, el we have uh, quite a long uh, story about the history of the Jewish people. Yes, this is taken from the 17th, uh, 17th chapter, Surah in Arabic, and here you can see, and we decreed this is God speaking in the plural, yes? Uh, we decreed for the children of Israel in the book, yes? Yeah, you shall do corruption in the earth twice. And uh, according to the continuation, we understand that this corruption in the earth twice was uh, rewarded by God by the destruction of the two temples. So you see the first uh, paragraph, the, the, the second one here, speaks about men of great mind that went through the habitations and it was a promise performed, yes? God fulfilled his promise to destroy the first temple. And then we gave back to you the turn to prevail over them. Then we had the chance to build the second one and then the second one. Then when the promise of the second came to pass, we sent against you our servant, yes? As they enter, and they entered the temple as they entered it in the first time. Now it's important that this addition that maybe the Lord will have mercy upon you. But if you return, namely if you sin again and again, we shall return. This is the word of God, yes? God is going to punish us again and again. And the Muslims understand, okay, not all, but some major 
clerics uh, do understand it as, a, as an eternal promise to uh, punish the Jews whenever they sin. Uh, now, uh, in the first one, we have the uh, idea that the Jews are the most, the, uh, thou will surely find the most hostile of men to the believers are the Jews and the idolaters, yes? And uh, in the second one, I did bring the whole story, it's a bit complicated, but you can see and that God made some of them apes and swine, yes? This is very famous, this idea. And, uh, you know, it is uh, a challenge for the, for the academic research to understand why Muhammad, uh, or God, or Muhammad, the way you, or other uh, composer of this text, uh, why, where did he take the idea of uh, converting Jews to apes and swines? This, this remains a, a, a riddle. Uh, to some extent, there are some hints, yes, but uh, maybe I should have mentioned it earlier that the Quran contains a lot of midrashic uh, elements. This is also very curious. So uh, I'll just pause here also in order to speak a little about the riddle of the Quran, yes, uh, the riddle of the Jewish sources. Yes, it's not clear. How, how come it contains so much, uh, so vast uh, Jewish material, especially, as I say, from the Midrash? Yes, uh, it also, there is a, it is clear that he knows the biblical story, but very interestingly, only once the Quran mentions the uh, a, a direct quote from the Bible. Usually it tells the story without quoting the Bible, so we don't know. They had the knowledge, whoever composed it had the knowledge about the, the Jewish personalities that, that are mentioned in the Bible, but did they have a copy of the Bible? Did they use it? It's unclear. So uh, the swine, by the way, it's, uh, there is an idea that is uh, related, uh, if you remember, the miracle that happened to Jesus. Uh, uh, one of the miracles that, that, Je that Jesus made was that he pulled out of uh, the ghosts from a certain person and uh, put them in a flock of pigs that were near the Lake of Galilee. And these pigs ran uh, uh, to the lake and, and were drowned. Um, okay. Uh, so maybe this is the idea of uh, turning uh, people uh, into swine. The apes is still uh, a mystery, but there are some Talmudic stories about uh, people turning into beasts or the spirit of a beast uh, transferred to humans, so maybe it is related uh, to there. But still, who knew the Talmud? Who learned it? The Jews, maybe. Uh, uh, Jew, uh, Jews in the uh, people of Jewish origin that converted to Islam and uh, influenced the composition of the of the of the book. So, just to be sure, there are still many riddles about this very enigmatic book. Okay, <coughs> but as you see, the, this of course is very strong. Here is a, 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 
you will see this is a mention in the Quran of an event that I uh, described uh, previously, one of the fights against the Jews, yes? Probably against Quraiza, because, but you know, this is all what the Quran says. You don't have the name Quraiza, you don't have the context, you don't have the date. Uh, and as you know, the Quran is not uh, organized according to the historical uh, sequence. So, uh, then uh, what the verse says, he, and he brought down those of the people of the book, he is, means the Lord, uh, of the people of the book, who supported them from their fortresses. Yes, we mentioned the fortresses that the Jews owned and probably were there in, in, the, in a period of siege before they surrendered and cast terror in their heart. The Jews were afraid. Some you slew, yes? This is uh, God's word that uh, uh, seemingly accepts uh, Muhammad or the verdict of his messenger, yes? Some you slew, some you made captive. And he bequest upon you their lands, their habitation, and their possession, and the land you never trod. Yes, this was a major achievement because new territory was added to the uh, to the uh, emerging Muslim state. God is powerful over everything. And. Now we go to more, let's say, uh, ideological uh, aspects. And uh, the content of some of the polemics between the Jews and Muhammad. Now it says, the fools among the people, uh, according to most interpretation, these are the Jews, will say, what has turned them from the direction they were facing in their prayer, prayers aforetime? Uh, I, I'll explain this. Uh, you know, the Muslims today, we are now in the months of Ramadan, Muslims today and for the last uh, 1,400 years pray in the direction of Mecca. This is uh, well known. But there was a period, especially after the migration to Al-Medina, that Muhammad adopted the prayer to Jerusalem. Yes, Jerusalem as the Qibla. Qibla is the direction of the prayer. So, probably, the, the, this is the way the Muslim tradition presents it, that after he lost hope to, uh, uh, to persuade the Jews to join him, then he decided that we are going to pray towards Mecca and not towards the Jerusalem. So, the Probably the first paragraph presents the way the Jews mocked him, yes, and ridiculed, ridiculed him after this change, yes. So the, the fools ask, what is the reason that, uh, that you made this change from Jerusalem to Mecca? And then, he sa then God says, we have seen thee turning thy face about in the heaven. Yes, this is an interesting uh, admission that Muhammad was hesitant, yes? He, he, he was looking for the right direction. He was looking in heaven. And uh, you see, the editors of the Quran were not shy to include such quite an embarrassing admission, but that's the way it is. Now we, namely God, will surely turn thee to a direction that shall satisfy thee. 
and now the specific order, turn thy face towards the Holy Mosque, the Holy Mosque meaning Mecca, the Kaaba, and wherever you are, turn your faces towards it. Those who have been given the book know it, you know it is the truth from their Lord. So this is typical of the accusation that we'll see uh, in a minute, that the Jews are accused that they know the truth. They know that Muhammad is a true messenger, and they know that the prayer should be in the direction of Mecca, but they conceal it, and they mock him, and they try to, to adhere to their tradition of uh, praying towards Jerusalem. So this is an interesting uh, case, of course. And now another major accusation against the Jews in the polemic is that the Jews, um, on purpose, they falsify their own book. Yes, they falsify the Torah. And let's see what it says and more explanations to come. There is a party of them that hurts God's word and then tampered with it. And that after they had comprehended it. Yes, as we saw previously, the Jews know the truth. They comprehended it, but still they tempered with God's word, playing with it, uh, twisting it, falsifying it, modifying it. It's, the, I, I add these uh, verbs according to Muslim tradition, and I'll give you later an example. And then what he says, so woe to those who write the book with their hands. The Jews are writing the book in their hands. Namely, they do not accept exactly what was uh, bestowed upon them by God, and they prepare a book with their own hands. Then say, this is from God. Yes, but it's not from God. The day that they may sell it for a little price, yes, the Jews are ready to, for, for a certain reward or for a certain price, to falsify, they, they commit the the ultimate sin of falsifying God's word. So woe to them for what their hands have written. Yes? Now, uh, uh, the idea is that, the idea is, and it, it went through a, a process of development in later Muslim literature, that in the Jewish books, and, and also in the Christian books, there, there is a specific mention of the, of the fact that the Muhammad is going to appear. And the Jews, either they misinterpret what is actually written, or that they erase it from the written text. This is, a, of course, a very serious accusation. And it led to a, an interesting uh, field of research among the Muslims, of course, not all of them, but let's say the, some of the intellectual elite, that uh, they uh, looked in the Bible, basically the same way the, the Christians did before them. They looked into the Old Testament in the Bible, yes, and looked for verses that, according to their own interpretation, yes, foresee the arrival of Muhammad. And they accused the Jews that even the verses that you have in your text, you are not ready to accept their correct interpretation. And this is a, an interesting field because it uh, poses the question how, how far did later Muslim uh, clerics 
knew uh, and to what extent did they know the, the Bible, in what language, etc. This is very interesting. I'll just give you an example. One verse uh, is from Genesis uh, 49. It's the blessing of Jacob to his uh, children. And uh, they made use of a, a very known verse that also the Christian used to prove uh, the veracity of the Messiah. And this said, uh, uh, I say it in Hebrew, I don't know the... I'm not familiar with the St. James Version, but uh, in Hebrew, <laughs> Namely, I'll, I'll interpret it in my own uh, Palestinian English, that uh, it says that uh, uh, the tribe of Judah will rule, yes, and uh, there will be a succession of uh, rulers from this tribe, until Shiloh is going to come. Who is Shiloh? It's unclear. Is it a person? Is it a kingdom? It's unclear. There are Jewish explanations, but the Christian explanation is that it refers to Jesus, and the Muslim explanation is that it refers to Muhammad. There are also, of course, Muslim interpretation of the verses dealing with Ishmael, yes? In previous chapters of uh, Genesis, and also these are uh, interpreted as uh, declaring the arrival of uh, Muhammad, and also many other verb verses in the Bible in which the, the word Arab is included, or the word Kedar, yes, on, or even um, or even uh, Seir or Sinai, uh, geographical places in which uh, was the dwelling place uh, of Arab tribes. Um, if you remember, uh, in the chapter of Vezot uh, Abracha, it's the final blessing of Moses before his passing away to the tribes of Israel. And there, there he says, uh, uh, or maybe it's in Azinu, okay? I don't, uh, you, you'll correct me. Uh, uh, then he says, Adonai misinai ba, vezarach miseir lamo, ofia me'ar pa'aran. So they say, there are three, uh, three descriptions of the, let's say, appearance of God. Sinai, they say it is the Jewish one. Seir uh, is the Christian one. And the third one, Pa'aran, uh, it's really, we don't know exactly, yes, but somewhere, somewhere in the desert, maybe in Israel, maybe the other side, yes, in the south of Israel, there is a settlement now today called Pa'aran, not a settlement in the meaning of, uh, in the territories, but inside Israel of the Green Line. Yes, uh, there is a Moshav named Pa'aran, and they say this is related to the Arab, and this is the Bible saying, yes, and you Jews are not ready to accept it. Yes, so this is a, let's say, a sub-wrench of Muslim polemics against the Jews, using the Bible, yes, trying to learn the Bible and find proof uh, uh, to their uh, assertions. And by the way, this is the reason that the Rambam 
prohibited Jews from uh, teaching the Bible to Muslims. He said to Christians, you may do it because they accept that this, this reflects really what God said. But as the Muslims uh, accuse us of falsifying the book, then there is no use in teaching them the Bible. Okay, but you see, they learned it anyway, the way Jews themselves learned the Quran. And the Rambam himself was aware of the Quran, and we can prove it from some uh, of his uh, sayings. Now, this is not uh, a Quranic verse. This is not a Quranic verse. This is a Hadith. Hadith is a saying attributed to the Prophet. We cannot guarantee that he really said it because usually the hadith reflects later trends in Muslim thought and it was very convenient to attribute it to the prophet. Yet, yes, yet it, it acquired a very high status uh, within the Muslim community. And this is very famous. I brought only one hadith. And the prophet said, the hour, namely the day of judgment, yes, uh, will not begin until you fight the Jews until a Jew will hide behind a rock or behind a tree, and the rock or tree will say, O Muslim, O slave of Allah, here is a Jew behind me, come and kill him. And this is oft-quoted oft uh, text, yes? And it speaks for itself, yes? Now, uh, there is a minority of verses that can be understood as being more tolerant. Of course, you, you know, you know, you know the, the vast uh, options of interpretation in our tradition, and we are only 14 million. Imagine that the Muslims in the world are close to 1.5 billion. So uh, you, you may understand that what I present here is only part of uh, what is common and what is uh, <coughs> included in so many books. But it's important to note, and people do make use of these tolerant verses. So, uh, in the first one, you can see that uh, if God had willed, he would have made you one nation, but that he may try you in what has come to you. Namely, this is a recognition of the importance of diversity of uh, people, maybe of beliefs, so be you forward in good works, unto God shall you return. So, uh, so to speak, there is a competition between various groups, nations, who is doing the good works, and he is the one that is going to be rewarded by God. Another, he says, no compulsion is there in religion. Rectitude has become clear from error. Okay, but the beginning is the most important, yes? No compulsion is there in religion. Again, there are many ways to understand it, but uh, it uh, indicates, at least on the face of it, some uh, pluralistic approach. And uh, again, you can see what it says in the in next. So whosoever disbelieves in idols and believes in God has laid hold of the most firm handle unbreaking. This you can understand as a somewhat uh, even an ecumenic uh, approach towards uh, others who have the common denominator with the Muslims that they disbelieve, disbelief in idols and belief in God. And that according, if you read this uh, verse separately, 
this is enough in order to have uh, to get hold yes and uh, to have God's uh, support Uh, this is also part of the Quran, as I said, and now uh, this is some kind, this is, can be treated uh, in a twofold way. The first one is really acknowledging the legitimacy of pluralism. Oh, believers, I serve not what you serve, and you, you are not serving what I serve, nor I am serving what you have served, etc., etc. To you, your religion, and to me, my religion. Okay? So this is one way to understand it. And the second, more prominent in, in Muslim circle, is to say, okay, to you, your religion, but because of that, you are going to hell. And to me, my religion, and because of that, I am going to paradise. Yes? But on the face of it, if you like, you can also use it as, a, as I say, a more uh, forthcoming... Uh, outreaching uh, attitude. Now, this is a very important verse. It, as I mentioned in the brackets, it's the verse of Jizya. Jizya is a kind of a tax or a poll tax uh, demanded from every non-Muslim uh, living under Muslim authority. Now, it's a question, how come it, it was included in the Quran uh, but according to Muslim tradition, this, this is what uh, Muhammad himself was ordered uh, to, to put as a major law in the, in, the, in the empire that is going to be established after his death. Of course, there are uh, researchers that say that this was added later, after the great uh, conquest of Islam. But it is important because this really laid the basis, the judicial basis for uh, relations uh, of the Muslim authority, of the Muslim state, with the minorities. Minorities that belong to the people of the book, yes? With Jews and, of course, mainly Christians. So, this is a very complicated and somewhat twisted verse, but the idea is that Okay, let's read all of it. Fight those who believe not in God and in the last day and do not forbid what God and his messenger have forbidden. This is the, a command to fight the non-believers. Such men as practice not the religion of truth. Now, being of those who have been given the book until they paid the tribute out of hand and have been humbled. Now, this is important, and the, there is a universal Muslim understanding that this means that people of the book, under Muslim rule, rule, they have a right to live, of course. They are not forced to embrace Islam. They can keep their uh, religious identity. They can even, there is nothing here that mentions that they cannot work or have, uh, have a cert certain positions within the Muslim uh, administration, so they can uh, uh, live, um, have their ritual uh, tradition, but, and this is important, they have to pay this poll tax and in a certain way, you see? The Quran stresses that they have to pay it out of hand and have been humbled. Out of hand is not exactly clear, but uh, the, the second part that 
that they have been humbled, it uh, reflects the idea that they should pay it uh, in a way that acknowledges their inferior position. For example, if the Muslim ruler is sitting, then they should stand and, and vice versa. And they should, uh, uh, this is a gesture, the payment is a gesture that uh, proves each time uh, over and over again their basic inferiority. Okay, so they have certain rights. If we look at it from uh, the Middle Ages point of view, this is quite, uh, uh, quite uh, let's say, <laughs> I don't know how to define it exactly, but this is a quite progressive idea. Of course, if we look at it from uh, the notion of uh, citizenship in a modern country, then it's uh, uh, much less attractive, yes? But uh, this really, and the, I, I pause here uh, on this verse, because it really laid the foundation, and it was actually uh, usually the case with Muslim-Jewish uh, relations through the ages. Of course, this is a subject for another lecture. <coughs> Uh, of course, there were uh, exceptions. There were times when Muslim rulers did want to force Jews to convert to Islam and presented them with the choice, either death or Islam. But this is still the exception. And the basic rule is this one. And you can see, it's, I mentioned the Rambam before, and you can see from his own history, from his own biography, the two faces of Islam. He was persecuted in Spain and later in Morocco, yes, and uh, because there was there a, a dynasty that uh, had heard to the idea that the Jews must convert to Islam. And then he succeeded in escaping first to Israel, to Eretz Israel, and then he moved to Egypt, where we lived uh, many decades, uh, quite many decades, and in Egypt, under another Muslim rule, he enjoyed uh, prosperity and uh, high status as a physician and also admired for his uh, intellectual achievements. But this, of course, gives us, uh, gives us a, a somewhat idea how was the reality after the first uh, very uh, bloody chapter of relations with the Jews. Now I would like to uh, present to you one, uh, a, one specific explanation of a very important surah, a chapter, and then of a very important verse. And I called it Against the Mainstream, Muhammad Abdu's reading of Quran 1-7 and its implication for current Muslim-Jewish relations. Now, who is Muhammad Abdu? I'll show you his uh, picture. This is Muhammad Abdu. He, uh, he was the Mufti of Egypt. He, he died in 1905, more than 100 years ago. And he is considered, let's say, the founder of Islamic modernism. A, a person, a cleric, that uh, was uh, influenced and impressed by European culture and tried to make some kind of combination of Islam and ideas borrowed from the West. So uh, he, he has the reputation of being, let's say, some kind of a liberal in his approach. Of course, he confronted a lot of criticism among uh, religious circles. 
Uh, he also worked, for example, for, he was a graduate of Al-Azhar that we mentioned before, and he worked very hard for modernizing the curriculum of Al-Azhar. This was not easy because of the adherence of uh, the heads of Al-Azhar in his own time to their tradition. They said, this is something new. We don't accept it. Why should we teach geography? Why should we teach history? And he said to them, you know, he said to them, but three quarters of the Quran is history. Of course, according to the interpretation. And the Quran teaches us that we have to draw lessons from history. So why do you refuse it? No, they said no. Only later, after his death, some improvements were introduced. And today, Lazar is a governmental university, still very important one. Okay. Of course, of course, we don't. This is another sharp subject to understand the attitudes of Elazar. I know that you wrote something, I saw it. Yes, thank you. Yes. Uh, and so we go back to the, uh, let's go back. This is the opening, the first surah of the Quran, the first chapter. It is in a form of a prayer. Yes, and there, there is a lot of discussion how come that we have a prayer in the beginning of the Quran uh, that seemingly is the, is, these are words of men, not words of God. And the usual interpretation is that this is the way God ordered the Prophet and all Muslims later how to approach him, how to pray. You have to pray with this formula. Yes, and you know this is the basic part of Muslim uh, liturgy. Yes, that's the way they pray, five times a day. Each time the opening uh, chapter is a major uh, component of the prayer. And they also they use this, uh, this prayer when you sign an agreement, when you have a wedding or a funeral on the other hand, God forbid, etc., etc. So it's very uh, uh, relevant to Muslim life and uh, and obedient Muslims is uh, repeating it many times a day. So therefore, it is interesting to, know, to understand if there is any reference to Jews and what is that reference, what is the content of that reference. So, so if you read in the beginning, if you read till uh, 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 the verse number 6, if you read it till verse number 6, you can translate it into Hebrew, put it in the Sidur, and you won't feel any strange feeling. Yeah, really, really. And there were ideas, yes? There were ideas among serious Israeli people, Jewish people. Let's take it and uh, combine it into some way into the Jewish prayer. Because, in fact, it was, it, it contains Jewish ideas, yes? In the name of God, the merciful, the compassionate, Praise belongs to God, the Lord of all being, the all-merciful, the all-compassionate. He is the master of the day of doom. Thee only we serve, to thee only alone we pray for succor. Guide us in the stray's path. But now comes the seventh problematic verse that it says, it, in simple reading, the path of those whom thou art blessed, this is the straight path, yes, that the Muslims want to continue going. But, and now the negative definition, not of those against thou art wrathful, yes, nor of those whom are astray. And now the traditional uh, 
understanding in that the blessed are the Muslims. Yes, the first, there are three categories in this verse. The first are the Muslims, those who got the blessing of God, and now every time they pray, they want him to continue to bless the Muslims. Those that God is uh, very angry at are the Jews, yes, the second category. And the third one that are, let's say, are astray, as it says, that uh, do not know the way, they wander, etc. Those are the Christians. I wrote it here. Yes, so three categories. And this is very deep-rooted in the traditional exegesis and in mainly if you, if you after this lecture, you go to enjoy uh, this day of Ramadan in the old city. If you ask them what is the meaning of, uh, of the seven verse that you have now read in the, in the mosques, they, most of them will tell you this one, yes? We want God to continue to bless the Muslims. Please don't, don't guide us the way or don't treat us the way you treated the Jews and don't treat us the way you treated the Christians. Now, Abdu's explanation is different, and it's very unique, and I'm, I'm, I was not the first one to find it, but I'm really proud that I now circulate it more and give it uh, its, its proper place. Of course, I'm aware, this, as I, and I say again and again, his explanation is not uh, the uh, most uh, popular one, but still, it's very interesting to note. So what, what does he say? He, said the, he says the following. Uh, it, he he bases it upon logic, but you, it's clear that what guided him is, is to get rid of the anti-Jewish and the anti-Christian uh, explanations. And he said, uh, it's not logic. It, he said uh, this way, this uh, prayer was probably presented to the prophet or given as an order to the prophet in the very beginning of his activity, in the very beginning of his, let's say, relationship with the divine. So, it is not logical that in this verse there will be a reference to Muslims, because in that, in that time, yeah, it, it really didn't exist, he said, yes? We, we were, we, the Muslims were not yet a, a crystallized community. So how come he was given the order to pray uh, uh, that he already knew that the Muslim community is going to be blessed by God. So he said, the reference in this verse, the reference, so who were those who are blessed if we say that it was one of the initial contexts of the divine with Muhammad? Those are the, uh, as I mentioned here, those are pre-Islamic personalities. They were blessed. Moses was blessed. Abraham was blessed. Uh, was blessed. Uh, even Ishmael, yes, but not the Muslim community as such. So, uh, you can see, according to his understanding, the Quran is uh, praising non-Muslim prior to Muslim, or let's say proto-Muslim, yes, because in the Muslim uh, in the, in the way the Muslim theology has evolved, even Moses and Abraham, they are considered proto-Muslims, yes? They were some kind of Muslims the way Muhammad was, yes? They were not part of the sinners, the Jews, yes? That, that uh, committed so many sins. 
So, according to him, Muslims are not mentioned in this verse. And, and therefore, the second category and the third category are also people from the past. It can be Jews that God was angry with, but it can be also non-Jews. It's not, and it's not such, it's not a stigma. According to him, it's not such a stigma on the Jewish, the old Jewish people and all the Christians. This is very interesting. And it's very interesting that he himself, he posed an interesting question. Uh, uh, after saying that, he himself posed in his, uh, in his uh, book of uh, interpretation of the Quran, he, uh, he posed the question, so how, ca how can it be that Islam is the perfect religion on the one hand, and still in our prayer we mention people that maybe they were proto-Muslims, but they were not Muslims. They still didn't have, for example, the Sharia, the perfect Sharia Moses didn't have. This, only this was only given to Muhammad. Then he, he inserts a very liberal and pluralistic approach in the following saying. The Quran himself explicitly states that the religion of God is one in all nations and that the legal commands change from one religion to another only in detail, according to the change of times. But there is no change in the foundations, in the basic principle, this is called in Arabic usul, belief in God and in the prophets and rejecting evil and striving towards the best of virtues is similar in all religions. So this is a very interesting saying. And I must add that it echoes today in Egypt as well. He was from Egyptian, Egyptian descent, as I mentioned, and you find uh, references to these ideas in the ongoing debate in Egypt. As you know, and this is again a subject for another meeting, uh, President Sisi declared a few years ago uh, a project of renewal of religious discourse. For Jerusalem Talks, thank you so much for joining us.